0: welcome back. If you're joining us for the first time today, we're so glad that you're here. This is Celebrating 60-something. But let's be honest here. I'm sure that you're getting just a little sick and tired of hearing my voice every time you listen to Celebrating 60-something. And I'm hoping that after the first of the year, when this COVID thing calms down a little bit, or maybe they get a vaccine or whatever, that I can begin having more guests. Right now, it's a little frightening for some to come here to my office and talk to me just a couple of feet away without a mask on. You can't do a podcast with a mask on. And take into consideration that we are 60-something, which is a little bit higher risk. We have to be extra cautious. And so I'm not able to have a lot of guests on my program right now. So you get to hear from me most of the time, which, okay, I get it. But that's just the way it is. So today and for the month of December, we are just going to be telling Christmas stories because that seems to be something that everybody loves at Christmas time. And when you think about Christmas stories, one of the ones that's most recent at least relatively speaking, it's not like a Charles Dickens story or The Real Story of Christmas. It is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And Rudolph came about in the year 1939. The Depression was just ending, but things were still a little cautious. There was still kind of a shadow cast over everything. People weren't spending a lot of money, and the executives at Montgomery Ward needed something to boost their sales. So they asked Robert May, he was a company copyright writer, I think it was, to come up with a whole new Christmas theme, something that would push their sales and help promote things. And he came up with a Christmas poem that was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and was later changed into a story and used to promote things. But that first year, it was just a character that was used to promote Montgomery Ward's Christmas sales. So anyway, that's how Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer came about. But today we're going to just read a story, maybe two if we have time, about Christmas back in the 1940s. This is by Harvey Patterson from Belmede, Texas, and I don't know who sent this. So, anyway, here it is. It was Christmas Eve, 1942. I was 15 years old and feeling like the world had caved in on me because there just hadn't been enough money to buy me the rifle I wanted for Christmas. We did the chores early that night for some reason. I just figured Daddy wanted a little extra time so we could read in the Bible. After supper was over, I took my boots off and stretched out in front of the fireplace and waited for Daddy to get down the old Bible. I was still feeling sorry for myself and, to be honest, I wasn't in much of a mood to read scriptures. But Daddy didn't get the Bible. Instead, he bundled up again and went outside. I couldn't figure it out because he had already done all the chores. I didn't worry about it long though. I was too busy wallowing in self-pity. Soon he came back in. It was a cold, clear night and there was ice in his beard. Come on, Matty said, bundle up good, it's cold out tonight. I was really upset then. Not only wasn't I getting the rifle for Christmas, now he was dragging me out in the cold and for no earthly reason that I could see. We'd already done all the chores and I couldn't think of anything else that needed doing, especially not on a night like this but I knew he was not very patient at one dragging their feet when he told them to do something, so I got up, put my boots back on, and got my coat. Mommy gave me a mysterious smile as I opened the door to leave the house. Something was up, but I didn't know what. Outside, I became even more dismayed. There, in front of the house, was the work team, already hitched to the big sled. Whatever it was we were doing, it wasn't going to be a short, quick, little job, I could tell. We never hitched up this sled unless we were going to haul a big load. Daddy was already up on the seat, reins in hand. I reluctantly climbed up beside him. The cold was already biting at me, and I wasn't happy. When I was on, Daddy pulled the sled around the house and stopped in front of the woodshed. He got off, and I followed. I think we'll put on the high sideboards, he said. Here, help me. The high sideboards? It had been a bigger job than I'd wanted to do with just the low sideboards on. But whatever it was we were going to do, it would be a lot bigger with the high sideboards on. Then Daddy went into the woodshed and came out with an armload of wood, the wood I'd spent all summer hauling down from the mountain, and then all fall sawing into blocks and splitting. "'You been by the Wood of Jensen's lately?' he asked. Mrs. Jensen lived about two miles down the road. Her husband had died a year or so before and left her with three little children, the oldest being about eight. "'Sure, I've been by, but so what?' "'Yeah,' I said. "'Why?' "'I rode by just today,' he said. Little Jakey was out digging around the woodpile trying to find a few chips. They're out of wood, Matt. That was all he said and then he turned and went back into the woodshed for another armload of wood. I followed him. We loaded the sled so high that I began to wonder if the horses would be able to pull it. Finally he called a halt to our loading. Then we went to the smokehouse and he took down a big ham and a side of bacon. He handed them to me and told me to put them in the sled and wait. When he returned, he was carrying a sack of flour over his right shoulder and a smaller sack of something in his left hand. "What's in the little sack?" I asked. "Shoes. They're out of shoes. Little Jakey just had gunny sacks wrapped around his feet when he was out in the woodpile this morning. I got the children a little candy too. It just wouldn't be Christmas without a little candy." We rode the 2 miles to Mrs. Jensen's pretty much in silence. I tried to think through what Daddy was doing. We didn't have much by worldly standards, Of course, we did have a big wood pile, though most of what was left now was still in the form of logs that I would have to saw into blocks and split before we could use it. We also had meat and flour, so we could spare that, but I knew we didn't have any money, so why was he buying them shoes and candy? Really, why was he doing any of this? Widow Jensen had closer neighbors than us. It shouldn't have been our concern. We came in from the blind side of the Jensen house and unloaded the wood as quietly as possible. Then we took the meat and flour and shoes to the door. We knocked. The door opened a crack and a timid voice said, "'Who is it?' "'Lucas Miles, ma'am, and my son Matt. Could we come in for a bit?' Mrs. Jensen opened the door and let us in. She had a blanket wrapped around her shoulders. The children were wrapped in another and were sitting in front of the fireplace by a very small fire that hardly gave off any heat at all. Mrs. Jensen fumbled with a match and finally lit the lamp. "'We brought you a few things, ma'am,' Dad said as he sat down the sack of flour. "'I put the meat on the table.' Then he handed her the sack that had the shoes in it. She opened it hesitantly and took the shoes out one pair at a time. There was a pair for her and for each one of the children. Sturdy shoes. The best shoes. Shoes that would last. I watched her carefully. She bit her lower lip to keep it from trembling and then tears filled her eyes and started running down her cheeks. She looked up at my daddy like she wanted to say something, but it wouldn't come out. We brought a load of wood too, ma'am, he said, then turned to me and said, Matt, go bring in enough to last a while. Let's get that fire up to size and heat this place up." I wasn't the same person when I went back out to bring in the wood. I had a big lump in my throat, and as much as I hate to admit it, there were tears in my eyes, too. In my mind, I kept seeing those three little kids huddled around the fireplace and their mother standing there with tears running down her cheeks with so much gratitude in her heart that she couldn't speak. My heart swelled within me, and a joy that I'd never known before filled my soul. I had given it Christmas many times before, but never when it had made so much difference. I could see we were literally saving the lives of this family. I soon had the fire blazing and everyone's spirit soared. The kids started giggling when Daddy handed them each a piece of candy, and Mrs. Jensen looked on with a smile that probably hadn't crossed her face for a long time. She finally turned to us. God bless you, she said. I know the Lord has sent you. The children and I have been praying that he would send one of his angels to spare us. In spite of myself, the lump returned to my throat and the tears welled up in my eyes again. I'd never thought of my daddy in those exact terms before, but after Widow Jensen mentioned it, I could see that it was probably true. I was sure that a better man than daddy had never walked the earth. I started remembering all the times he had gone out of his way for Mommy and me and many others. The list seemed endless as I thought on it. Daddy insisted that everyone try on their shoes before we left, I was amazed when all the shoes fit, and I wondered how he had known what sizes to get. Then I guessed that if he was on an errand for the Lord, that the Lord would make sure that he got the right sizes. Tears were running down Widow Jensen's face again when we stood up to leave. My daddy took each of the kids in his big arms and gave them a hug. They clung to him and didn't want us to go. I could see that they missed their daddy, and I was glad that I had mine. At the door, he turned to Widow Jensen and said, The missus wanted me to invite you and the children over for Christmas dinner tomorrow. The turkey will be more than the three of us can eat, and a man can get cantankerous if he has to eat turkey for too many meals. We'll be by to get you about eleven. It'll be nice to have some little ones around again. Matt here hasn't been little for quite a spell. I was the youngest. My two brothers and two sisters had all married and moved away. Mrs. Jensen nodded and said, Thank you, Brother Mills. I don't have to say, May the Lord bless you. I know for certain that he will. Out on the sled, I felt a warmth that came from deep within, and I didn't even notice the cold. When we had gone away, Daddy turned to me and said, Matt, I want you to know something. Your mother and me have been tucking a little money away here and there all year so we could buy that rifle for you, but we didn't have quite enough money. Then yesterday, a man who owed me a little money from years back came by to make things square. Your mom and me, we were real excited, thinking that now we could get you that rifle, and I started into town this morning to do just that. But on the way, I saw little Jakey out scratching in the woodpile with his feet wrapped in those gunny sacks, and I knew what I had to do. "'Son, I spent the money for shoes and a little candy for those children. I hope you understand.' I understood, and my eyes became wet with tears again. I understood very well, and I was so glad Daddy had done it. Now the rifle seemed very low on my priority list. He had given me a lot more. He had given me the look on Mrs. Jensen's face and the radiant smiles of her three children. For the rest of my life, whenever I saw any of the Jensen's, or split a block of wood, I remembered, and remembering brought back that same joy I felt riding home beside my daddy that night. He had given me much more than a rifle that night. He had given me the best Christmas of my life. That's such a great little story that really conveys the true meaning of Christmas. We all know that it's better to give than receive, and it brings us so much more joy, too, and I hope we'll remember that this Christmas. I have a little story here called The Man Who Missed Christmas by J. Edgar Park. It was Christmas Eve, and as usual, George Mason was the last to leave the office. He walked over to a massive safe, spun the dial, swung the heavy door open, making sure the door would not close behind him. He stepped inside. A square of white cardboard was taped just above the topmost row of strong boxes. On the card, a few words were written. George Mason stared at those words, remembering... Exactly one year ago, he had entered this self-same vault. And then, behind his back, slowly, noiselessly, the ponderous door swung shut. He was trapped, entombed in the sudden and terrifying dark. He hurled himself at the unyielding door. His hoarse cry sounded like an explosion. Through his mind flashed all the stories he had heard of men who were found suffocated in time vaults. No clock controlled this mechanism. The safe would remain locked until it was opened from the outside tomorrow morning. Then realization hit him. No one would come tomorrow. Tomorrow was Christmas. Once more, he flung himself at the door shouting wildly until he sank on his knees, exhausted. Silence came, high-pitched singing silence that seemed deafening. More than 36 hours would pass before anyone came. 36 hours in a steel box, 3 feet wide, 8 feet long, 7 feet high. Would the oxygen last? Perspiring and breathing heavily, he felt his way around the floor. Then, in the far right-hand corner just above the door, he found a small, circular opening. Quickly, he thrust his finger into it and felt faint but unmistakable, a cool current of air. The tension release was so sudden that he burst into tears. But at last he sat up. Surely he would not have to stay trapped for the full thirty six hours. Somebody would miss him. But who? He was unmarried and lived alone. The maid who cleaned his apartment was just a servant. He had always treated her as such. He had been invited to spend Christmas Eve with his brother's family, but the children got on his nerves and expected presents. A friend asked him to go to a home for the elderly people on Christmas Day and play the piano. George Mason was a good musician but he had made some excuse or other. He had intended to sit at home listening to some new recordings he was giving himself. George Mason dug his nails into the palms of his hands until the pain balanced the misery in his mind. Nobody would come and let him out. Nobody, nobody, nobody. Miserably, the whole of Christmas Day went by and the succeeding night. On the morning after Christmas, the head clerk came into the office at the usual time, opened the safe, then went on into his private office. No one saw George Mason stagger out into the corridor, run to the water cooler, and drink great gulps of water. No one paid any attention to him as he left and took a taxi home. Then he shaved, changed his wrinkled clothes, ate breakfast, and returned to his office where him his employees greeted him casually. That day he met several acquaintances and talked to his own brother. Grimly the truth closed in on George Mason. He had vanished from human society during the great festival of brotherhood, No one had missed him at all. Reluctantly, George Mason began to think about the true meaning of Christmas. Was it possible that he had been blind all these years with selfishness, indifference, pride? Was not giving, after all, the essence of Christmas because it marked the time God gave his son to the world? All through the year that followed, with little hesitant deeds of kindness, with small unnoticed acts of unselfishness, George Mason tried to prepare himself. Now once more, it was Christmas Eve. Slowly, he backed out of the safe, closed it. He touched its grim, still face lightly, almost affectionately, and left the office. There he goes now in his black overcoat and hat, the same George Mason as a year ago. Or is it? He walks a few blocks, then flags a the taxi, anxious not to be late. His nephews are expecting him to help them trim the tree. Afterwards, he's taking his brother and his sister-in-law to a Christmas play. Why is he so happy? Why does this jostling against others, laden as he is with bundles, exhilarate and delight him? Perhaps the card has something to do with it, the card he taped inside his office safe last New Year's Day. On the card is written in George Mason's own hand. To love people, to be indispensable somewhere, that is the purpose of life. That is the secret of happiness. hope you have enjoyed these Christmas stories today. I sure enjoy sharing them with you. That's all I have. That's it for the day. So go out and make it a wonderful day. And if you can do something kind for someone else, I promise it will lift your spirits immensely. Don't forget to check out our blog slash website at Celebrating60something.com and leave us your comments there. Or you can leave us comments on our Facebook page. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Bye.